podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. What's good, boys and girls? Two-footed podcast on Tuesday, the 25th of October. Brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield are a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from, while also keeping your data safe. Go to LibertyShield.com right now and use the code EPL25, that's EPL25, to get 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk. And finally, do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you can find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 to get 10% off at checkout. Right, folks, we had one game in the Premier League last night. West Ham United 2 Bournemouth nil. I would suggest a little bit of controversy over both West Ham goals. First goal is a set piece. Corner taken into the box. Timo Carrere jumps. The ball clearly hits his arm. Now he's got his arms down in front of him. It's a strange kind of place that he has them. Ball hits his arm. Is half-headed clear, gets kind of headed back in, and then Kurt Zuma gets a little flick on it and puts it in. It very clearly hit Tilo Carrera's arm. Now, the argument is it didn't lead directly to a goal, but it did, because the goal was scored within three seconds of the incident. Now... There's been the argument made that the hands were by his body and he couldn't really do anything about it. And maybe that's the case, but it seems a little bit harsh on Bournemouth, who'd done really well to hold out to that point. Game stayed 1-0 until the 92nd minute. There is a breakdown the right by West Ham. Attempted cross. Jordan Zamora slides in to block the cross. And the ball hits his hand. Reviewed by VAR. Penalty given. Again, like... The, the issue I have here is there's no consistency with these handball decisions. There's just no consistency with them. You look at the, the Gabriel handball against Liverpool. Like, that's a far more blatant act than this one. Gabriel's hands are in a completely unnatural position and he moves his hand to the ball. Whereas Zamora is sliding in. His arms have to be somewhere. So this one seemed a little bit harsh. Ben Rama stepped up, slammed the ball home. Great penalty. And take nothing away from West Ham. Absolutely deserving of their victory. If anything, 2-0 flattered Bournemouth. 
even if both goals were a little bit hokey, the 2-0 did flatter Bournemouth. West Ham had lots of the ball, created some good chances in the game. Um, I thought both Neto and Mark Travers, when he was brought on for Neto, um, made some very, very good saves in the Bournemouth net. So I, I think all things considered, West Ham completely deserving of their victory. What it does is it shoves West Ham up to 10th in the league. They started the game in 17th, which tells you all you need to know about how tight the Premier League is. Um, coming up for West Ham in their next games, they've got Silkberg on Thursday night in the Conference League, then a trip to Old Trafford, then Stoya Bucharest in the Conference League, then they get West Ham at home, then Blackburn at home in the Cup, and then Leicester at home in the league. So a nice little three-game homestand going into the World Cup break. West Ham, I think, will be targeting wins in both of those games against Palace and Leicester, and they would be favourites to beat Blackburn, obviously, in the Cup. If they can win five of their next six, that will send them into the World Cup break on a real high with confidence back to where they had hoped it would be pre-season when they made obviously big investments in the squad. The most difficult game there is obviously the trip to Old Trafford, but you never know. Now, they struggled against United last season, but they have the players to go and cause United a lot of problems. And Skimaka will cause United trouble because he's exceptional, an absolutely exceptional footballer. For... Uh, for Bournemouth, they are 14th. That is back-to-back defeats, which puts an end to Gary O'Neill's really strong start. Um, they've got Tottenham next. That's at home. Then a trip to Leeds, and then two games against Everton, both at home in the Cup. Leeds is a winnable game for them, even away from home, and Everton at home is a winnable game. The, the Cup is irrelevant to Bournemouth this year. They're not going to win it. They need to focus on the league. If they can take four points from their three league games, I think that's a pretty good uh, a pretty good get for them. If they can say, let's say, beat Everton at home, draw with Leeds, but let's say they lose to Tottenham, that's not a bad return. And will at least keep them head above water going into the World Cup break. And then they can reassess things. They might they might appoint a manager during the World Cup break. You never know. Um, looking at the table, you see how tight it is. Forest, bottom, nine points. Wolves and Leeds, both nine points. That's our bottom three. Leicester have 11 points. Then you've got Southampton and Villa on 12. Bournemouth... Palace and Everton on 13. Brentford and West Ham on 14. Brighton on 15. Liverpool on 16. Seven points from bottom to eighth. The West Ham were literally 17th going into that game yesterday. And now they're 10th. They're a top half team again. That's how quickly things can change. Now, in the bottom half, Palace and Leeds both have games in hand. 
Leeds game in hand is against United. Um, Palaces is against Brighton. The other game in hand, or the other teams that have games in hand, are Chelsea and Liverpool are set to play each other. So it's very, very condensed. Even from Liverpool in eighth to Newcastle in fourth is only five points. And Liverpool have that game in hand. So everything's very, very tight. We don't know much of anything about the Premier League at the moment. It's likely we won't after 14 games or 15 for most teams um, when we when we go to the break. Uh, sorry, I missed one of the games that hasn't been played yet. City versus Arsenal, the top two. Um, we won't really know the state of the league when we go to the World Cup break. Nobody is separating themselves from the pack. And nobody is falling away at the bottom. Now, it would be easier to fall away at the bottom, you'd imagine, than to pull away at the top between now and the end of the World Cup break if someone goes on a particularly bad run. Like Leeds are on a terrible run at the moment. Four straight defeats. Wolves have lost four of five. Forest are actually in their best run of form of the season at the moment, having taken five points from five games. You've got teams in really good runs of form. City have won four of five. Arsenal have won four of five. Newcastle have won four of five. Chelsea have won three of five and are unbeaten in those five games. You've got Brighton in mid-table, haven't won in five, three defeats in those five, and they're still sitting ninth. Very comfortable. So it's all very tight. A couple of wins here and there will change the table substantially. But again, I don't see anyone pulling away at the top or drifting away at the bottom between now and the World Cup break. One team who, up until their last game at the weekend, looked like they could potentially find themselves stumbling into that bottom three, and I think they spent a little bit of time in said bottom three, I think they were in the bottom three going into the weekend, is Aston Villa. Aston Villa have played 12 games and taken 12 points. Three wins, three draws, six defeats. They sacked Steven Gerrard after an embarrassment against Fulham, replaced him with Aaron Danks, who had been on the coaching staff, and then absolutely wiped the floor with Brentford winning 4-0 at the weekend. And yesterday, I got quite excited by the idea that they might appoint Ruben Amram as their new manager, and they have not. They have appointed Unai Emery, Instead, now I can look at this two ways. Number one, first and foremost, Unai Emery is a very good football manager. He is a very good football manager. He knows how to get the very most out of mid table clubs. If we take a look at his career as a manager, which began in 2004 with Lorca Deportiva. Then he moved on to Almeria, spent two years there, guided them to their first ever promotion in into La Liga. They finished eighth in La Liga. So that was an outstanding job that he did at Almeria. Took them from the Secunda division into the top flight 
and then finished in the top half. He gets the job at Valencia. Now, Valencia are one of the biggest clubs in Spain, as everybody knows. You've got your big three. It's really a big two. It's Barca and Real. Then Atleti kind of sit in the plinth by themselves. And then there's a group of teams that can at times sit on the same level as Atleti, but at times drop way off. You've got Valencia, you've got Sevilla, you've got Villarreal, who it's mainly because they punch way above their weight. It's They're not a huge club by any stretch. You've got Sociedad, you've got Betis, and you have um, Athletic Bilbao. So he gets the Valencia job. He's there four years. So they had finished 10th under Ronald Koeman, who had taken over in the November, and it hadn't really gone well. He'd been sacked after five months. And the whole season was a bit of a mess. Now this, remember, was the Valencia team when Koeman was in charge that had David Villa, David Silva, Ivan Helguera, Joaquin, Santiago Canizares, Raul Albiol, Carlos Mochina, Ever Benega. This was a really good, like a really good Valencia squad who just massively underachieved. So Emery comes in, number of players leave, a lot of senior players leave. Um, he loans out players that he doesn't believe are going to contribute to what he wants to do. He brings in Pablo Hernandez. Leeds fans will be very aware of him. Uh, Asia Del, Del Horno comes back off a loan. Chelsea fans will remember him. Hugo Viana, formerly of Newcastle. And he puts together a squad quite quickly that he believes can do the job he wants them to do. And they finish sixth. And the following season, they finish third. He gets them into the Champions League with minimal investment because at this point, Valencia's finances are in the toilet. So he gets third. The next season, he finishes third again. And then in his final season, he again finishes third. Now, he doesn't have a whole lot of Champions League success. It's worth pointing out. Uh, he hasn't really mastered the European side. In his second year, 0-9-10, he gets them to the quarterfinals of the Europa League. Um, in the Champions League, it's round of 16 and then a group stage exit, but gets to the semi-finals of the Europa League having dropped in there. And he kind of gets forced out. And it's a very bizarre situation, the way he leaves the club. But he turns up at Spartak Moscow. Now, to be fair, he, he was on a hiding to nothing at Spartak. Nothing was going to go right there. You had, I think it was Valerie Carpin, was working as the sporting director, but wanted the job of manager to go to somebody he was friendly with. The owner had gone above his head and appointed Emery. And within six months, Emery's gone. The team hasn't played well. He hasn't been given the players he wanted. 
nothing's really been done to his liking. So out he goes, and he turns up at Sevilla in the January. And Sevilla are struggling, to say the very least. But he manages to right the ship. The results still aren't great, but, you know, it's a win one week, a loss the next. And he finishes ninth. In his second season, he finishes fifth. But he also wins the Europa League. Now there, if I'm not mistaken, the reason they got into the Europa League was because they got to the semi-final of the Copa del Rey Lost to Atletico Madrid, who were going to be in the Champions League. If I'm not mistaken, the other two teams in the other semi-final were Real Madrid and Barcelona, who were also in the Champions League. So they got the Europa League spot as sort of the the semi-finalist who wasn't going into the Champions League. But year two, well, year first year, really. First full year at Sevilla, he wins the Europa League and finishes fifth in the league at the same time. Year two, he wins the Europa League and finishes fifth in the league. Year three, he wins the Europa League. Who does he beat? Liverpool. Finishes seventh that season in La Liga. And then gets the big offer. Paris Saint-Germain come knocking. They're looking for a manager with European pedigree because they've you know gotten a bit bored of dominating in France and not progressing in the Champions League. So they get Emery. First year doesn't go to plan. They fail to win the league title. That's the year of that incredible Monaco team with Fabinho, Moutinho and Bakayoko rotating in midfield. Thomas Lamar one wing, Bernardo Silva the other, Falcao and Mbappe up front. That's that team. They win the league, PSG finish second. PSG do win the Super Cup, the French Super Cup, the League French League Cup and the French Cup. So he does win three cups there, but they win them most years. Round of 16 exit in the Champions League. The next season, he wins the league, wins all three cups, but again, round of 16 exit in the Champions League. And unfortunately for him, That's not acceptable for PSG. So he goes out and they move on. And then he lands at Arsenal. Now, this is an Arsenal team that had finished second, sorry, sorry, finished sixth the previous season and he was replacing Arsene Wenger, the greatest manager in Arsenal history. Now, that summer, they also appointed Sven Mislintat, you remember, And the transfers are a little bit weird. So they bring in Bert Leno for huge money. They bring in Socrates for 14.5 million, Lucas Torreira for 27 million, and Matteo Guendouzi for 8 million. To a squad that had finished sixth, that was not an acceptable level of strengthening for a team that wanted to get back into the Champions League. Now, you look at that squad and 
outside of Aubameyang and Lacazette, there's very few goals in it. There is talent in the likes of Osel, Mkhitaryan from time to time. But, I mean, it is a really poor squad. The first choice defence that year was, if I'm not mistaken, Bellerin at right back, bang average. Nacho Monreal at left back, bang average. Socrates and Mustafi at centre back. Because I think I'm right in saying Kishelny was injured for most of that year. Yeah, Kishelny misses over half the season with injuries. So that's the defense he's working with. He's got a double pivot that's largely granite jacket plus one. You're never winning anything with that. Anything of you know importance with that. Um he does have a fun attack. There is talent in the attack in Aubameyang, Lacazette, Osel, and Mkhitaryan. But Mkhitaryan struggles that year, as he did for most of his time in England, it must be said. But he still gets them fifth. He gets them fifth in the league. And he gets them to a Europa League final. If he'd focused on the league, chances are he finishes top four. Because they missed out on the Champions League by one point. They finished one point behind Tottenham. Only two points behind Chelsea in third. And they lost four of their last seven league games. And chances are, if they had focused on the league and not the Europa League, they would have gotten top four. They get walloped in the Europa League final by Chelsea. Having had a, a good run to get there, they knocked out Napoli and Valencia along the way. Um, had a big comeback against Wren in the round of 16 where they lost the first leg 3-1, came back and won the second leg 3-0 at the Emirates. That's a good season, though. That's the best season any Arsenal manager has had since Wenger left, including the current manager. 70 points is a bigger total than anything Arteta has managed. The next year, then, they go out in the summer. They bring in Martinelli. They bring in Saliba, who he was largely responsible for. They bring in Kieran Tierney. They bring in Douglas Louise. No, David Louise and Nicolas Pepe. Um, the ill-fated move that basically cost Mislintat his job and eventually would cost Emery his job. The season starts really poorly. And they're they're not performing at the level that Arsenal were expected to perform at having spent so much money in the in the transfer window. So he gets sacked at the end of November. At the time, Arsenal are sitting in eighth place. Now Bear in mind, they have spent most of the season to that point in the top five, but they've gone five games without a win, two of them were defeats, 
they've failed to win in nine of their Premier League games to that point. They'd only won four of their first 13 games. So that's basically what did for him. So they bring in, Freddie Lundberg takes over as caretaker for three weeks, and then they bring in Arteta. And Arteta does little to nothing in the league, has a, has a good run to begin the the his tenure um, in terms of avoiding defeat, but finishes eighth, a one, was a, a week away from finishing 10th, and wins the FA Cup. So, you know, he did well in that regard. But at the end of the day, Arsenal finished on 56 points. The following season, Arsenal finished on 61 points. And then last season, Arsenal finished on 69 points. So even with all the money that Arteta has spent, he has not yet matched what Emery did. Having been sacked by Arsenal, Unai Emery takes a little bit of time off and then rocks up at Villarreal. And in his first season there, he wins the Europa League because this is what Unai Emery does. Um, finishes seventh in La Liga, which was a little bit of a disappointment given they'd finished fifth the year before. But to win a European trophy with a club like Villarreal, that outstrips any accomplishment in the league other than winning the league. Um, go through the group unbeaten, knock out Salzburg, knock out Kiev, knock out Zagreb, knock out Arsenal, and then beat Manchester United on penalties in the final. And I think to have knocked out Arsenal and beaten Manchester United will have given him enormous pleasure. Then this past season, they finished seventh. They get to the semi-finals of the Champions League, which is a massive accomplishment in itself. Again, the seventh place in the league is a little bit disappointing, but you have to factor in Gerard Moreno was injured for quite a bit of time. Uh, this season, again, they are seventh. And I've seen some people say, oh, it's, it's a very disappointing season so far. They're like four points off the top four. And two points off fifth. So I don't know that's massively underperforming. Their level on everything, basically, with Athletic Bilbao, who people have lauded for their excellent start of the season. So I'm not really sure why there's a, such a big double standard there. Like, if you look at this squad, it's not as a, exactly a who's who of the best of the best players. Pepe Reina, washed. Kiko Femenia, he was failing quite badly at Watford up until now. Raul Albiol. Raul Albiol, who remember, was in that Valencia squad that he managed 15 years ago or 14 years ago, uh, who's now 37 years of age. Pau Torres is very good. Uh, Quenk is okay. Etienne Capoue, would you take him? Probably not, not at this point. Moreno's good. Juan Voigt or Foyt, last seen failing at Spurs, last seen by English folks failing at Spurs. Uh, Danny Pareo, picked up off the scrap heap. Good player, of course, picked up off the scrap heap. Uh, Chukwesi, who hasn't really kicked on in his development. Geronimo Rulli, who's a mentalist. Trigueris, who's a squad player best for a good team. Dan Juma, of course, formerly of 
Bournemouth, bought from the Championship. Giovanni Lo Celso, who failed at Spurs. Uh, Alberto Moreno brought in on a free, Liverpool legend. Uh, Francis Cocaine wasn't good enough for Arsenal. Valencia let him go. Manu Merlanis, okay. Jeremy Pino is an exciting winger. Jose Luis Morales, I haven't seen enough of. Isa Mandy, not very good. Uh, Alfonso Pedreza, solid backup winger slash fullback. Uh, Nicholas Jackson looks a talent. Alex Bayena looks a talent. And Philippe Jorgensen, I don't know much about. Like, that's not a who's who. I don't know why seventh in La Liga is seen as um, this huge disappointment for Villarreal. Especially when you consider that their home matches this season couldn't be played at home. They had to play away from home in their first three games in their next four home games which is all they've had this season, four home games out of 11, they've played them all at a neutral venue. So they haven't even played at home this season because there's work being done on their own stadium. Point of all of this is that Emery's a very good manager and he's very good with clubs like Villa. But he's never had the type of money to spend other than when he was at Arsenal and he had to deal with Mislintat and all his nonsense. He's never had the money to spend that he will have at Villa. But he gets the best out of pretty much every player he uses. Now, the style of football isn't the most enticing. And that's kind of the other way to look at it. He's not the most flamboyant or exciting manager when it comes to the brand of football nobody can deny he's a very good manager but you can make the argument he's a bit boring but maybe that's just what Villa need is just a functional team a functional manager to drag them up into the top half of the Premier League and set in place real foundations that they can then build further off in three years. But there's no doubt to me that Emery will be a success at Villa. I think he'll he'll absolutely want to go in the transfer market and bring in at least one centre-back. And I think he's going to want most likely to add a couple more wingers because he likes to have rotation options out wide. He's going to play some variation of 4-4-2. It could be a 4-2-3-1, but a 4-4-1-1, whatever. It'll be somewhere in that scope. But he will make them really solid at the back, fundamentally very, very sound. He will coach them until they can be coached no more. And when he feels they can be coached no more, if he has the backing, he'll move them on and bring in others. I think Villa have done really well here. This man turned down Newcastle a year ago. Probably because he has morals. But he turned down Newcastle a year ago and he's taken this job. I think that shows the pull of Aston Villa. 
I think it shows the size and ambition of Aston Villa. They are one of the great English clubs, whatever way you want to cut it up. They are one of the great English clubs. I would say, from a historical point of view, they're the fourth biggest club in England. Now, I'm not saying they're part of the big six. Obviously, that is City, Chelsea and Spurs. But from a historical point of view, other than United, Liverpool and Arsenal, there isn't a bigger club in England. Spurs are only bigger or seen as bigger because of recency bias. And City and Chelsea have bought their way into that into that kind of setting of being in the big six. They're there because of finances. Spurs are there because of overperformance. There's no real reason that Villa, over the next 10 to 12 years, couldn't overperform in a similar manner to what Spurs did. Now, I know the league is a little bit stronger in terms of rich clubs, money, uh, than it was when Spurs began their overperformance. Obviously, City weren't, weren't then what they are now. Newcastle weren't a factor. But if we're going to be expanding to a, a big seven, I, I think Villa could make it a big eight. I really do. I think they've got the fan base. They've got the history. They've got the stadium. They've got the right ownership. They've got the right backing. There's the ambition there. There's a good group of players. There's a good group of players. I think Villa could could do something quite impressive over the next few years. And I think Emery can be the jumping off point for that. I think he can guide them into Europe. I could see him, not this season, but next season I could see him getting them Conference League football. And... The thing is, when you see uh, Skimaka turn up at West Ham or a Paqueta at West Ham or a Gimerish at Newcastle or a Sven Botman at Newcastle. Now, I know Newcastle have a lot of money to spend, but they don't really have much in the way of a draw at the moment. It's, and I don't, I don't believe they are yet paying mega wages when you see those type of players rock up there, there's no reason Villa couldn't attract those type of players. There's also no reason Villa couldn't hugely improve their scouting network to go and start, you know, when a Michael Elise is starting to really show himself in the championship, that Villa can't be the first club in the door for him. There's no reason they can't expand their academy and really start to churn out high-caliber young players. They've been doing it in recent years. We've seen Ramsey. We've seen Chuck Wemeka, uh, the younger Ramsey, Aaron. He's also super talented. And there's, there's many others. That Villa Academy is full of quality. So there's no reason that Villa can't grow themselves exponentially over the next few years if they put the right people in place. The, the unfortunate thing for Villa is, well, I think they've gotten this right. I just don't think they've got the right people in place at CEO because I think Perslow's awful. And I'm not sure the director of football is the right person for the job. I'm not sure. I'm not sure Johan Lange is of the right mentality 
to grow a club like Aston Villa. That's basically my thoughts on it. I don't know that he has the right mentality to grow a club like Villa. We'll see. We'll see. We'll take a break. When we come back, we've got winners and losers from the weekend's Premier League games. We'll have a little look at tonight's Champions League games. And then we'll do the gossip and be done. So we'll see you in a sec. Right, welcome back. So, time to take a bit of a look at the winners and losers from this past week's Premier League games. We'll start with the winners. I think, first of all, it's got to be Aston Villa, and we have to include Unai Emery in that. Big, big win over Brentford. Great for confidence. Much-needed points. And I think has lifted the mood around the club so that Emery is actually joining on a bit of a groundswell of confidence rather than coming in as would have been the case if they'd lost, where everybody's down and everybody's fed up and the fans aren't up for it anymore because they've just been watching Dross for 11 months. But after what we saw against Brentford and the fact that that shape is similar to how I would expect Emery to play, I think it's a really good week for Aston Villa. Got rid of Gerrard, got a big win, and got a guy who realistically, I think he has to be considered a top 20 manager in world football. I think he has to be. With that track record, I really do think he has to be. Great success at Almeria. Did really well at Valencia, keeping them in the Champions League spots despite the fact the club was falling apart. Remember, this was Valencia during the global economic crash when their stadium plans and everything went down the river because they were bleeding money. Um, Spartak didn't go well, that's fair enough. But he did incredible work at Sevilla to win three Europa Leagues. Three Europa Leagues, incredible. Three in a row. If you win any competition three times in a row, that's amazing. To win that competition three times in a row is just... I don't know that we'll ever see someone do that again in that competition. I think we're more likely to see someone win the Champions League three times in a row again. And that hadn't been done before Real since the 70s? Wait, it was either Ajax or Bayern. I think it was Ajax, wasn't it? Ajax. No, it was Bayern. So Ajax won three in a row, then Bayern won three in a row in the 70s before the English clubs began to dominate. And then nobody else had done it. The only team that had even gone back to back was Saki's Milan. And then Real won it three times. But I don't know that anyone had ever won the UEFA Cup three times in a row. I would guess they hadn't. And I don't think it'll happen again. Um, 
let's see, let's see, let's see. Real Madrid did it, won it back to back years in eighty five and eighty six. Real fans would call those the dark years when they're playing in the Europa League or the UEFA Cup as it was then. No, it had never been done, and I don't believe it'll ever be done. The only other team that had won two in a row, other than that Real team in the 80s, was Sevilla in 06-07 under Juan de Ramos. See, because, especially now, because you go into the Champions League, um, it's even more difficult to do it. I love that Sevilla have won it six times. Twice as many as anybody else. I love that that's their competition. And it's all in 15 years. They won it in 06, 07, 14, 15, 16, and then 20. Um, yeah, I, I think we're more likely to see someone win the European Cup three times in a row before we see someone do that again. I think he's, you know, wins the, whatever about France, he won the league, the league in France. Wins the Europa League again with Villarreal, which is just an amazing achievement. And he did well at Arsenal, regardless of what Arsenal fans want to tell you, he did well there. The style of football is what really put them off. But I don't think that'll be as big an issue for Villa. I think Villa have had a great week. Uh, next winner, I think Everton turning around a bad run of three straight defeats with a solid 3-0 win at home against a team that are in and around you in the league. I think that's a very, very good week for Everton, a very good weekend for Everton. Uh, the week itself, obviously not so much because they lost during the week, but I think that's a, a great win for them. And then Newcastle would be my third team because they are in the top four. And while I don't believe it's sustainable, and I think they'll probably finish seventh or eighth, it's the first marker for them to check off to spend a little bit of time in the top four. Um, and look, they're unbeaten in five or six games now. They've only lost once all season, which puts them alongside Arsenal and City. Uh, they've got, I believe, the best defensive record in the league. Yeah, only 10 goals conceded. That's one better than Chelsea, one better than City, and one better than Arsenal. So all things considered, things are going very well for the two. Now, I think the squad is still too thin. But results are what matters. And, you know, we, we've looked at their games coming up. Villa this weekend. Now quite interesting with Emery. Then Southampton away and then Chelsea at home. So tough enough games. Could get a new manager bounce out of Villa. Southampton are weird. And Chelsea... Chelsea will be favourites to go and get something because they're Chelsea. Losers then. Uh, Liverpool, absolutely shambolic. You can't be losing to the bottom team in the league. You just can't. You just can't be losing to the bottom team in the league. I think Spurs. I think that's back-to-back -back defeats in games that they really should be doing a lot better in. That's not a particularly good United team and they were awful. And Newcastle are okay, but to lose at home is is not acceptable. Um, and my third loser of the week is not a club. It is an individual and it's, it has to be Steven Gerrard. It has to be Steven Gerrard. He got sacked 
and then the team that the group of players that you know he had his pals in the media saying weren't good enough went out and wiped the floor with Brentford who were a top half team starting the weekend um that's really bad a really bad look for Gerard I've seen some people like Jamie O'Hara the boffin that he is say that the players stopped playing for him no they didn't if you watched Villa the effort was still there they just had no idea what they're meant to be doing they clearly hadn't been giving given any instruction you'd wonder what Gerard was actually doing on the training ground because it looks like in 48 hours the coaching staff that were left behind, which was a skeleton crew after Gerard took everybody with him, were able to get a real tune out of them, you know, by playing players in their actual positions, by dropping underperforming players like John McGinn. It's a really bad week for Steven Gerrard. Really bad. And if Emery turns this thing around quickly, and like, let's be honest. One win would take them into the top half if 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 results went the right way for them. One win would take them into the top half. If Emery has them in a good position at the end of the season, it's going to be a really bad look for Gerard. A really bad look. Because I don't know that they ever really got out of those bottom places under Stephen Gerrard. Let's see, Aston Villa last season... Gerard takes over on the 11th of November. <clears throat> that was after the Southampton game. But to be fair, to be fair, he did have them ninth for a couple of weeks. They finished 14th. But earlier in the season under Dean Smith, they'd been eighth before that really bad run that got Smith sacked. So ninth but mostly 14th and this season under Gerard 16th ninth after their first win 13th 15th 19th 17th 15th 14th 16th 16th 17th he gets the boot now they're 15th and it's a difficult little run without doubt you've got to go to Newcastle you've got United at home and you've got to go to Brighton. It's a difficult run for Emery to get started with. He's also got United in the Cup. Um, but it wouldn't surprise me if he's able to turn things around quite quickly. And even if they take three draws from those three games, that'll be confidence boosting. That'll be a four-game unbeaten run in the league going into the World Cup break. Uh, I've gotten sidetracked talking about United Emery again. Uh, yeah, Steven Gerrard is the third loser of the week. Champions League games tonight. We have in the early kickoff Red Bull Salzburg versus Chelsea. This is from Group E. Chelsea are currently top of that group. Seven points, two wins and a draw, and one defeat. Salzburg have a win and three draws. They're unbeaten so far. Um, when these sides met earlier in the competition, this was the wasn't this the first game of Graham Potter's tenure? I think I'm right in saying it was, and might have been the second game. I think my, no, the league game was cancelled because the Queen passed away. But I'm almost certain this was the first game of his tenure, 
And it was a 1-1 draw at, at Stamford Bridge. Uh, Sterling scored and Okafor scored. Chelsea are playing well. Now, they had obviously a disappointing performance at the weekend against United, but they are playing well under Graham Potter now. And you would expect them to go there and get the win. Uh, Sevilla take on Copenhagen in the other game of the early kickoffs. That's from Group G. They're third and fourth, respectively. Neither of them have won a game in the Champions League. Two draws, two defeats each. They drew last time out. And Sevilla's season is really not going well. Um, not Certainly not in Europe. They sacked the manager because they've been in the bottom half of La Liga most of the year so far, or all of the year so far. Um, but they'll be favourites in this game because they're at home. That's the be-all and end-all. They're, they're the better team and they're at home. They should be favourites to win that one. Then we have six games at 8pm. So Paris Saint-Germain versus Maccabi Haifa is up first. PSG are top. Maccabi are bottom. Maccabi, of course, did beat Juventus last time out, which was a really impressive performance by them. PSG won the first game between the two. You would expect that PSG will win this one as well. Uh, Dortmund against Man City is an interesting one. Dortmund have caused City some problems in the European Cup in recent years. Uh, not last season, the season before. You'll remember they met, I believe, in the quarterfinals. I think it was the quarterfinals. Bellingham had a perfectly good goal disallowed at the Etihad that should have given Dortmund a draw. And then Dortmund went one up early back at the Westfalen Stadion, which should have put, well, it did put them ahead in the tie based on away goals, but should have put them ahead on aggregate as well. City fought back and ended up winning the game 2-1. But if the Bellingham goal had been given and, and yeah, the Bellingham goal, did City win 3-1? If the Bellingham goal had been given, I think Dortmund would have gone through. 2022, let me see. Let me think. Right, 2021, round of 16. Yeah, City won both games 2-1. So if the Bellingham goal had been given, they would have won 4-3. But would they have come back if it had been a draw in the first leg and Dortmund had gone one up? Would City have come back and been able to turn that round? I'm not sure they would have. I'm not sure they would have. <clears throat> and then this season, Bellingham put Dortmund one up at the Etihad and Stones and Haaland scored late goals for City to give them the win. So Dortmund have caused City these problems the last two times they've met. And remember, when Dortmund played City in the European Cup back in 2021 in those quarterfinal ties, Haaland was injured. Haaland didn't play. So they caused that problem, those problems without him. Now, they don't have them this time. Obviously, City have them. But, you know, they'll cause City some trouble. Don't think City will win that one easy. They should win it. I think City should win the game. Um, City are already through Dortmund need a point to go through but they'll get that in the last game regardless um, Dinamo Zagreb against AC Milan 
Milan, for me, hugely disappointing in Group E. Um, their third, Zagreb, or bottom. Zagreb beat Chelsea in the first game. Milan just really poor in the two games against Chelsea, just hamstrung themselves with bad decisions. Um, so, yeah, that's a decent enough game tonight. We have Benfica-Juventus, which I'm, I'm quite looking forward to. That's also Group H, along with PSG Maccabee. Um, a draw puts Benfica through and sends Juventus, at best, into the Conference League, or into the Europa League. At worst, they could potentially end up missing out on Europe altogether after Christmas, which would be a disaster. But Juve going into the Europa League, along with Barcelona, could be a lot of fun. As things stand... The teams dropping in would be AC Milan, Shakhtar, Sevilla, Juventus, Sporting, Barcelona, Atletico Madrid, and Ajax. The Europa League could be brilliant after Christmas. It genuinely could be brilliant after Christmas. Last two games tonight then are Celtic versus Shakhtar. Celtic got a good draw away to Shakhtar the last time, but it's been a bit of a disappointing group so far for for Celtic, if we're being honest. Uh, that's the only point they've taken. And um, the results against Leipzig were just disappointing, but not, not, not overly surprising. Opportunity for people to watch Mudrik if they're so interested, but also an opportunity to watch Celtic, who are one of the most entertaining teams in Europe. And then Real Madrid against Leipzig. You'd fancy Real to win fairly comfortably. Um, Real look, to me, like the team most likely to win the European Cup this year. Now, it is in Leipzig, so when I say fairly comfortably, that might be an exaggeration. But I do think Real look like the the team to beat right now. I, I think from a tactical point of view, from an experience point of view, from a maturity point of view, from a a winning mentality point of view. I just think the level's ahead of everybody else. So that is our eight Champions League games. We'll wrap with the gossip. Tottenham want to agree a new contract with Harry Kane early next year and are confident he will commit his future to the club. I do think he he's going to want Conte to commit first. Uh, Bayern Munich Sporting Director Hassan Salahamazic says the Bundesliga club will not be active in January. Interesting. Oh, well, it is Christian Folk, so who knows? Um, Eric Ten Hag would like to keep Cristiano until the end of the season. However, he will not accept. <laughs> oh, however, if he if he will not accept a reduced role, he will be allowed to find a new club. Uh, that is excellent politicking by Eric Ten Hag. Bayer Leverkusen's Patrick Schick. Lille's Canadian international Jonathan David and Lyon's French 26-year-old Moussa Dembele are Ten Hag's preferred options to replace Cristiano. I'd like to see Patrick Schick in the Premier League. With the right service, I think he'd score a lot of goals. Uh, Cristiano is still open to return to Italy with Napoli still keen. No, they're not. Uh, Chelsea will prioritise a move for Rafael Leao. This is 100% going to be the spoof for Ben Jacobs. 
Let's see now. It's the mirror, but it's via it's CBS via, via the mirror, uh, and I would bet, I would bet it is Ben Jacobs spoofing away as usual. Uh, Paris Saint Germain have doubts over their ability to continue paying Kylian Mbappe's contract. The 20, 23 year olds current deal is worth, and brace yourself for this, five hundred and forty nine million over three years. A quarter of the team's total budget. Their total budget for three years is over two billion. PSG have denied these figures are correct, but I wouldn't. If PSG told me the sky was blue, I'd go out and check myself. And I certainly wouldn't believe Romano when he's um, the one that's been used to lump out any any nonsense. Chelsea are considering loan options for Gabriel Slanina, the 18-year-old goalkeeper they signed for 12 million in the summer. The Blues are still interested in signing Russian midfielder Arzen Zakarian from Dinamo Moscow. He's very talented. Antonio Conte believes he will need three more transfer windows to improve the depth of Tottenham squad. It's a really good sign for Spurs fans that Conte's talking like that, because that means he is bought in and he does plan to be there for the foreseeable Real Madrid are set to improve their offer to Marco Asensio I don't know why you'd bother um, and Postacoglu has dismissed reports he could make a move to the Premier League amid reports that linked him with Brighton and Leicester Leicester won't go north of the border again the only reason Leicester went for Rodgers the last time was because he'd been at Liverpool um, Brighton will be more likely to appoint him, but I again, I, I just don't think uh, he would look to make that move. I think when he does eventually leave Celtic in 25 years, uh, he'll probably just go back to Australia. Um, Paris Saint-Germain want to keep Lionel Messi at the club and are, are, and are working on a contract extension. So that's from Le Parisien. Also from Le Parisien was the um, story about their inability to continue paying Mbappe. Like, Messi ain't cheap, so it's got to be one or the other. They either can't afford to pay either of them, or they're looking to extend Messi, and that's absolutely fine in terms of the money they have available. Uh, Liverpool will rival Manchester United for the signing of 18-year-old Portuguese centre-back Antonio Silva. That kid looks really good. He's at Benfica. He looks really, really good. A little bit Ruben Diaz, but more pace. Better passer off his weak foot. Not as... um, Not as rash. Not as rash. That's the best word, I think, to, to use. Um, one of two really exciting young Portuguese centre-backs. Him and Inacio at, at Sporting, really exciting players. And that's likely, you would guess, the long-term pair. The other one is David Carmel. That could be a great back three, potentially, for Portugal in the long run. Um, Chelsea are set to appoint Monaco Technical Director Lawrence Stewart in a revamped setup of their backroom staff. Uh, I mean, fair. 
I'm not sure how many people they need to put in place. He's someone that has been around a long time. Um, he was at Hull for a number of years. He was at Man City, I think, for a couple of years. Then he went to... Did he go directly to Leipzig or was there a job in between? I know that when Paul Mitchell went to Monaco, he recruited him. But I can't remember if it was directly from City if there was somewhere else in between. Um, and he's been at Monaco now with Mitchell for a couple of years. Very, very highly regarded. Uh, so that's quite a good get for Chelsea. But what's his role going to be? Like They can't just all have nondescript roles. Everybody has to have a job. Uh, Spanish manager Kike Setien is the front runner to replace Unai Emery at Villarreal. Kike Setien, of course, former Real Betis manager, did really good work there. Did pretty good work at Barcelona, but nobody was all that happy with him. Uh, won sixty four percent of his games, but you know, for some reason that wasn't good enough. Um. Yeah, I I think he's, I think he's a decent manager. I think he plays pretty entertaining football. Spent most of his career in the kind of lower leagues and as as an assistant and different things like that. But yeah, he could be fun. He could be fun. Sixty four. This is probably his last big job, so he'll want to make it a memorable one. But I think he's a, he's a really nice fit with Villarreal and the mentality of that club. Right, that'll do me for today, folks. I will see you all tomorrow. Take care of yourself. Have a pleasant one. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.